It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Ida Volk in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 3rd of September. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. All right, we have Ido back on the podcast, and we're going to spend the bulk of today's discussion with our guest talking about Afghanistan. But before we did, very quickly, Ido, what is your moment of the week? My moment of the week is a televised debate that there was between the three main candidates for German chancellor. And as Jeremy wrote in a piece, the debate seems to have solidified the perception that Olaf Scholz, who Jeremy also profiled this week for the New Statesman, is enjoying a burst of momentum. And Scholz's Social Democrats have now overtaken Armin Laschet's Christian Democratic Union in the polls, which has shaken up a what had previously been perceived as quite predictable race. And so we've got lots of analysis of the German election on the New Statesman website and in the magazine. If that interests you, you can, of course, read that on the website and listen to the special episodes of World Review, which are covering the German election right here in this podcast feed. What's your moment of the week, Emily? Well, I'm going to note that this week, a Texas law went into effect that bans abortion after six weeks. It also allows anyone who isn't a government official to sue those who they think are intending to help someone get an abortion. Activists had sort of asked the Supreme Court to block this law, given that it effectively overturns Roe v. Wade, which is sort of the landmark case that made abortion legal and accessible nationally in the United States. That's an oversimplification. But I guess what listeners should know is that the Supreme Court decided this week not to block this law. In a 5-4 split, Chief Justice Roberts sided with the liberal justices they're going to hear another lawsuit in, later in the fall about an, a similar Oklahoma law. But for now, effectively, Roe v. Wade has been gutted in this country. This law is, it, it's its difficult to overstate how intense this ban is, right? The restrictions that it puts on people in Texas. I think one should also note that, you know, people will say, well, they can go to another state, but the surrounding states are Oklahoma and Louisiana, where I believe there's a grand total of eight abortion clinics total in those two states. So for people interested one way or another in a woman's right or, or a person's right to choose in the United States. This has been a landmark week, but a landmark week that followed you know, months and years of efforts to, to overturn the right to an abortion in the United States. On that note, I think it is time to turn to our main discussion, which as I said, will be on Afghanistan. And for that, we are going to bring in our guest. 
He is the author of the upcoming book, Geopolitics for the End Time, and also, most relevantly, a New Statesman contributing writer who has written for us on Afghanistan. Our guest is Bruno Masayish. Bruno, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Emily. It's a pleasure. So before we get into sort of the geopolitics of this discussion, you know, you were in Kabul before it fell to the Taliban, and I was hoping you could speak a bit about what that was like. It felt eerie. There were all these uh, dinners and private parties, and maybe the listeners find odd that, that we're having these dinners, but obviously in Kabul, it's impossible to go to a cafe or even restaurants, very difficult. You, you have to go through um, all the security checks and the restaurants sometimes in a basement. So uh, obviously there was uh, some meetings in the green zone with journalists, with local businessmen, uh, with visitors of different kinds, embassy people. And the conversations were all about when is it going to end? So there was this mood of something important is, is about to, to happen. And, and and what we have here is about to collapse. So we talked a lot about when it's going to happen. It was important for all of us. Journalists were trying to decide whether they stayed or they left to see their families and came back. I was trying to decide which day to buy my return ticket. And many Afghans were trying to decide whether to leave or not, those who felt threatened. And so the conversations were about that. And even when we tried to talk about something else, it felt kind of fake and the conversation quickly returned to the question of when is Kabul going to fall? So I've never been in that kind of environment where, you know, you feel that the world around you is about to collapse. So you've written a few pieces for us on Afghanistan. And, and the most recent one was about basically how Biden, Joe Biden, got everything wrong about Afghanistan. We will post a link to that piece in the listener notes for this episode. But I was hoping that you could tell listeners a bit about how, in your opinion, the Biden administration got everything wrong? There was a serious error of intelligence, broadly understood, understanding what was happening in Afghanistan, what was inevitable, what was not inevitable. It was very striking for me that, you know, as I just said, all of us knew Kabul was going to fall in days, a week maximum. And it's striking that as, as we discussed the exact date, we kept hearing from John Kirby that perhaps in 90 days, Kabul could be under pressure. So that was odd to see from Kabul. There was an entirely misguided, deluded assessment of the strength of the Afghan army and the Afghan state. There weren't 300,000 soldiers. There were perhaps 10% of that. Everyone in Kabul knew that. There was a misguided understanding of the political process that was happening in Doha. And that's where it all started. But obviously, I'm still very much under the impressions from, from the evacuation, what happened in the airport, and also the messages that I get from friends there. The evacuation was very poorly planned, and now all these leaks are coming out, and it's, I don't think it's, it's a partisan issue anymore. Everyone agrees that it wasn't planned. Uh, Bagram should not have been closed, and the evacuation had to start much earlier. But the truth is, the U.S. government and U.S. authorities, the, the embassy there, simply was caught by surprise. They didn't understand that there were only days to go. It is puzzling how you can make such a succession of, of very serious errors on such a delicate issue with consequences for the lives of so many people. And we should note that this week, for the first time, the U.S. Um, confirmed that it left behind the majority of Afghan allies who had applied for, for visas due to fear of reprisal from, from the Taliban. That's correct. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion whether there was, this was a sort of a cynical ploy that you didn't want to bring them back anyway, difficult political immigration issue. And, but, you know, there's a leak today that says, well, a senior official 
uh, talking, I think, to Reuters. And he says the reason we didn't evacuate these people is just that in the confusion, the chaos outside the airport, it was impossible to identify them. And I think this is the this is what happened. There was no conspirational attempt to limit the number of Afghans uh, going to the United States or to third countries, more likely. There was just complete chaos and danger in the last few days. And therefore, it became impossible in this environment to proceed to, to evacuate the people that were supposed to be evacuated. How could the evacuation have gone better? Could it have been better planned? Even if, if you accept the premise that the evacuation and the, and the withdrawal had to happen, do you think it, it went badly? And, and could it have gone better? Oh, it could, could easily have gone better. There was a, a critical choice to make. If you decide that this government will not survive, and everyone knew it wouldn't, then you start the evacuation now. And obviously, that's going to speed up the process and it's a message to the government that it is over. But by the way, my impression is that the Afghan government received that message when the U.S. closed Bagram, if not before. So that wasn't a question, but clearly U.S. authorities were afraid of precipitating the end by starting to withdraw. But it's very clear, it was very clear at the time, in my opinion, but it's very clear in retrospect that that's what they should have done. Start the evacuation as soon as the Taliban were moving on the on the first provincial capitals. Understand that the process is inevitable. And, you know, in Saigon, the evacuation started, I checked the other day, two weeks before Saigon fell. And I think that's the rule of thumb here. Two weeks is the minimum. And that's when it should have started. And I think your first piece in the series that you wrote a battle from Afghanistan. You wrote that one diplomat told you, I think Kabul will fall in September, and the very next day that prediction seemed optimistic. Why do you think there was this kind of groupthink, this expert consensus, this intelligence consensus that got it so wrong, that was just so misguided, that caught everyone by surprise, including you know the Taliban, but most importantly, obviously, the, the Afghans and, and the Americans? Right. So the September date, which is the date I kept hearing when I arrived, was the date the U.S. was supposed to withdraw. And everyone took seriously the idea that it was inconceivable that the U.S. Army would allow for the Taliban to arrive in Kabul before the evacuation was concluded, before the U.S. left. U.S. still has the kind of prestige that made that scenario unthinkable. But still, that's very different because, you know, what we're hearing from Washington is that maybe three, maybe three months and earlier six months. There was talk even recently of perhaps one, two years after the withdrawal that the government would be able to uh, hold on. So the the mistake in Kabul was perhaps to believe too much that the U.S. would never allow things to get to the point that eventually happened. So there's a, a mistake coming out of still American prestige, but that was quickly corrected. And after a few days, suddenly the same ambassadors that I had told me September were saying, you have to think about leaving, Bruno, because uh, very soon the airport is going to be taken over for the American evacuation. They don't have bagrams, so they will take over the airport and the commercial flights are going to end. So you have to leave now. So there was an awareness, very clear awareness in Kabul among everyone that this was going to happen. It's the message from Washington that didn't didn't fit with the facts on the ground. Do you think that part of it is that in order to say that, hey, the Afghan government and the Afghan military are not going to be able to survive the U.S. withdrawal, the U.S. would have had to admit that this project was a failure, right? That they were not able to create, if, if the, if they ended up, right, like they, that this country and this military is essentially being propped up by the United States, which means it doesn't have on the ground legitimacy, right? Which means that it doesn't actually, that it cannot survive on its own. And what does that say about the last 
20 years of what we were doing there. Do you think there was an element of that? Or is that, I mean, I guess this is a very leading question. I guess, what, how does that, that kind of unwillingness to admit the failure of the project fit in? Yeah, I th- I'm sure there was part of it. The people were still perhaps afraid to raise their voices, those who knew. There was a certain, perhaps, uh, hope that things would improve. The phone call that has now been leaked between President Biden and President Ghani is illustrative of that, but also of a certain belief that perception is more important than reality. And perhaps it is in D.C., but not in Kabul. And so there was a succession of errors and a certain unwillingness to, to pull the plug. I think that could take us back to discussions about also the pandemic in the U.S. Uh, I think some of the bureaucratic administrative structures uh, have become very large, difficult to manage, with a certain void vacuum of authority that no one is able to actually say, stop now, this is not working. And so there's a reflection here that goes beyond Afghanistan and goes beyond the pandemic about the U.S. administrative state as a whole. But what was very striking for me, and I'm still stunned by that, is that I would always assume, knowing as I, as I did, that the U.S. administrative state was in many respects dysfunctional. I always thought that military and intelligence were not. I thought they were the exception. And Afghanistan is a landmark moment in part because it shows us that the dysfunction also extends to those areas. And this is troubling because I wonder what people in Moscow and Beijing are concluding from these facts uh, and whether they will be emboldened with obviously consequences for global stability if you believe that the U.S. Army can no longer respond competently to international global crises such as Afghanistan and the evacuation. Yeah, well, a couple things. First, we should note that as, as large as the U.S. administrative state is, the State Department itself has been gutted in recent years, right, or, or downsized. And so there are some who note that the the sort of apparatus that needed to be in place to get refugees out, like there are backlogs, there are not people on it. But I wanted to go back to what you said about Russia and China, because this sort of brings me into my my question for you or our question for you about the geopolitics of it. First, what I wanted to ask was, you know, the, the sort of Biden line, and I, I don't doubt that he's sincere when he says this, but the Biden line is that we're withdrawing from Afghanistan to focus on our other national security interests, right? And the, the sort of the first one in Washington is China, but you could also say Russia. You, what do you make of that? I don't take it entirely seriously because I think competition with China is also present in Afghanistan in all kinds of ways, but of course, it's a country bordering China. But it's present, uh, in my view, in, in a more direct way. The US and China are engaged in a competition to shape the global order, and in many respects, to shape other countries. That's what superpowers do, either directly or indirectly, either through attraction or through influence, financial, cultural, and so on. Uh, superpowers are engaged in that project. So it is puzzling that the US seems to deliberately withdraw from it and in a way actually throw its air, its hands in the air and say, we can't do this. We admit that after 20 years, we were not able to have any long lasting impact on Afghanistan and we're going to give up. Because China is certainly uh, engaged in a process of shaping other countries and the question that has to be raised is, is China actually now more successful than the U.S. at this? You look at Pakistan, a country that is extremely difficult to understand and to manage for a, a foreign actor. 
And China has been quite successful over the past 10 years with limited goals, but those limited goals are being successfully pursued. And so you have to compare the U.S. and China and say, well, uh, perhaps in some respects, China has become more pragmatic, understands the constraints of operating outside its borders better than the U.S. does, has more limited goals, pursues them ruthlessly. And the conclusion from Afghanistan, in my mind, is not so much that the U.S. lacks commitment, but I lacks the ability, the skill to actually influence, impact, and manage foreign societies. And now you can say, why do you have to? And I'm sure the anti-war party in the U.S. now will, will ask that. But you know, my answer to that is that you have to if you're a superpower, and if you don't, others will. Do you see what happened in Afghanistan as a defeat or a humiliation for American power for, for the West? Or on the contrary, maybe, is it a necessary recalibration of a foreign policy that, as you've hinted, has tried to achieve too much, has tried to nation build in countries where, which it didn't understand, where arguably that, that project wasn't ever possible, as, as Joe Biden has, has suggested? Well, unfortunately, what happened was not so much a managed process, but simply a collapse, a crash. The withdrawal and the evacuation was not a, a process, it was a crash. And that doesn't project an image of competence or prestige. Now, if the U.S. had, over the past two years, led the negotiation process in Doha better than it did, and actually managed to reach an outcome where the Taliban would be in power, but with an inclusive government, and the U.S. would manage that transition, would not withdraw all the troops until the transition is concluded, would have managed competent evacuation of everyone in danger. Then I think you could make a very plausible argument that this was a necessary and productive change of course. And the U.S. would remain engaged in Afghanistan in some form or another. But what happened wasn't that. What happened was just giving up and, and, and running away in a completely disorderly process. I expect that over the next week or two, we're going to know more. There are going to be lots of leaks because there's this blame game going on. And it's going to become much clearer that this wasn't planned. This wasn't what organized. This wasn't conducted by anyone. It was just U.S. crashing out of Afghanistan. And that cannot be presented as a good outcome. And, and do you think this marks the end of this kind of liberal interventionism that we've seen, I suppose, since, since the first Gulf War, this idea that the West has the ability and almost the duty to intervene in foreign countries to improve their societies as they see it and to spread the ideals of, of liberal democracy, but that obviously that, that project has come completely crashing down with this chaotic evacuation from Afghanistan. And we should also note that although that's what we ended up doing in Afghanistan, that that was not the original, Bruno, I saw you had, you were tweeting about this the other day, that that, that was not the original intent of going in, right? It kind of, like the mission ended up warping into that. But sorry, I interrupted. So I will let you answer Ido's question. Right. Uh, I think there's a there's an important debate to be had about exactly what the US was doing in Afghanistan. I think there's a new book just came out, the, the Afghan papers, I believe. And it's very clear that uh, Rumsfeld didn't know what the goal was uh, from the very beginning. There was a utter confusion about the strategic goals of the operation. It's not clear to me that this nation-building project was, in fact, the goal. If you read the original documents, the Rumsfeld memos and so on, not at all. 
it seems to me that the goal was fundamentally to seek revenge from 9-11, but also to recover American prestige and image that had been battered by 9-11. And that's very clear in the, in the Rumsfeld communications at the time. Then, you know, for some people and over the years, this idea of nation building became a bit of a, of a boogeyman, but uh, I don't think it corresponded to reality. When you go to Kabul, you don't see this investment that people talk about and they see in Afghan society and the Afghan economy. In fact, aid was very limited, the order of two or three billion compared to two or three trillion in the war itself. So I actually wonder if that's the right conclusion to take. I think probably we should go back to drawing board and think about how we can shape and influence. When I say we, so Western democracies, shape and influence other societies, but in a deeper way, a more committed way, but more limited at the same time. Let's speak one or two or three important projects and really invest with full commitment in them, working together with those societies. If you ask me what was the fundamental error of the Afghan project over 20 years, it was not an excess of idealism. For me, it's almost the opposite. It's an excess of power that there was an inability in DC to accept that Afghan society and the Afghan state could develop in a fully autonomous and sovereign way. To the point where even after 20 years, what existed in the palace in Kabul was just merely a ghost projected from Washington, but not a real government. And President Ghani was not the real president uh, for every important decision you would call Washington. So if that's what you do, then you shouldn't be surprised that when you you withdraw support, either in Doha in February 2020 or when you leave Bagram, which was even more dramatic, then the government will collapse because the government is, is, is just being propped up by your power and your support. It would have been much better to allow a government that can say no to you, but that is more resilient and can survive even without you. That should be the goal. I want to follow up on this idea of commitment because we've spoken about Russia and China and Pakistan and sort of the other neighborhood player in this is India, a country that I know you are, you are interested in. There's sort of this debate within the Indian government and also sort of the strategy circles around the Indian government as to how reliable the U.S. can be as a partner. And and those who are critical of sort of going not all in, but further in on the U.S. point to things like this and say, look, like you've never been able to rely on the United States. You can't rely on the United States now. You know, how is this going to go? On the other hand, there are those who say, well, if they left this to focus more on China and that's sort of our shared, our shared adversary, then this is this remains the game in town that we that we need to play. What do you think this means for, for U.S.-Indian relations or just for India more generally? I think the impact is very negative, actually. I think more negative than in Europe. In Europe, you have, you know, intellectuals like myself and uh, outspoken politicians like Tugendhat and others. They've been very outspoken about this. But I'm already hearing from diplomats that, for example, my criticisms are too harsh and that America is doing as much as it can. And I think sort of Deeper in the structures of the European state and the EU, perhaps the impact won't be as dramatic as it looks now. I think in India, it might be more dramatic and more permanent because this is an issue of immediate national security for India. India is convinced, and I think plausibly, that what's going to happen in a Taliban-ruled Afghanistan is going to become a base for operations in Kashmir. And I think that's almost inevitable. And that the United States went ahead uh, unilaterally and put India in such a delicate position 
what the discussion right now seems to be is, well, we bet on the wrong horse. We shouldn't have trusted the U.S. with a matter of such importance for us. And really important people within the BJP are being quite open about this. Just saw Ramadav make a joke, uh, the old joke that it's terrible to be an enemy of the United States, but to be a friend of the United States is fatal. And so the impact on India could potentially actually be the big story coming out of Afghanistan. I wonder if it hasn't set back U.S.-India relations by a few years in the sense that the last three, four, five years were a moment when uh, finally, after much promise that was never delivered, Washington and Delhi really came together on common projects. And there's the possibility that Afghanistan is going to set back that project uh, it's, it's something that I haven't seen discussed, but if I was in the, in the State Department, I would be predominantly worried about this and trying to mend it uh, while it's still possible. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And on that note, it's time to move to a section that we like to call... You ask us. So I'm glad that you brought up European intellectuals and diplomats and the European reaction because our You Ask Us question this week comes to us from Carlos. And it is, how will the Afghanistan situation affect the EU going forward? In fairness to Carlos, he, he actually asked, how will COVID and the Afghanistan situation affect the EU going forward? But with apologies, I'm going to, for the scope of this podcast, uh, we're going to just focus on the Afghanistan situation and the EU. Mm-hmm. I see two kinds of of consequences. First, on transatlantic relations, 
I don't think there will be anything too dramatic, but there is a certain mood of perhaps not placing all the eggs in the U.S. basket, being a bit more cautious, uh, having a, a, a plan B. So, you know, in a common operation in the future, maybe the Europeans will want to have their own base so that they can evacuate their people. There's a lot of anger that the U.S. essentially kicked everyone out. It wasn't possible to evacuate our own people. 500 Germans are still, German citizens are still in Kabul. And in the future, I don't imagine you know, anything as dramatic as a new European army, but there will be a different way of planning and managing common projects with the U.S. Whether that's good or bad news, I think it's actually not necessarily bad. A little more autonomy from the European side could be a good thing. The other consequence, which could in fact be quite catastrophic, is the refugee wave. That's already started. We're seeing images from the Afghan-Iranian border and the Afghan-Pakistan border. Uh, people that were not able to be evacuated or couldn't, didn't have uh, any contacts or any money to actually leave through the airport. They are leaving on land and soon enough they will be on the Iranian-Turkish border. And if the refugee wave is not stopped on the Iranian-Turkish border, then it will come to Europe. And the consequences could be quite dramatic because this is a replay of 2015, the refugee wave back then. And at the time, there was this promise, sometimes implicit, but many times explicit, that what happened in 2015 would never happen again. If it does happen again, and perhaps even on a larger scale, then I think European public in many nations are going to feel betrayed. And the political consequences of that are really unpredictable, but you could see the rise of radical parties again, but on a much more consequential note. So that's, I think, the big story to watch is the, the refugee wave coming out of Afghanistan. And there's no good scenario here, because if the refugee wave is stopped on the way somehow, then we're going to have a humanitarian catastrophe with maybe two, three million displaced people and the UN very incapable of responding to that. So the two possible scenarios are it makes its way to Europe or it doesn't make its way to Europe. In, in either case, uh, we're going to be reading about it. And it's going to be a very consequential event coming out of, of the Kabul fall. One follow-up, which is that there's been an American critique of the European critique of the withdrawal of Afghanistan, right? Which is, well, you just wanted us to stay there because you didn't want a refugee wave. I mean, that's sort of the the like the crude way of putting it, but but that that is a response. What do you make of that? I think it's unfair. You know, Europeans are angry because we wanted the deadline to be extended, and we thought it was possible. And we don't understand why the U.S. didn't try. Why the U.S. took the the Taliban no as as the final response. It was a very critical issue for us. I'm in touch with with our own foreign ministry, and I know it is. I know we needed a few more days to bring out some people that we were committed to bring out. And what you hear is, well, perhaps the Americans don't honor their commitments to the people they offered promises to, but we do, and we're just not able to do it because of the U.S. There's a lot of resentment coming out of this. And certainly, we expected from President Biden to manage this differently, not as unilaterally. This is what you'd expect from Trump and not from Biden that there was no attempt to discuss with Europeans and that the G7 video meeting that he described as very successful is not what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that it was essentially six people asking Biden to please consider 
their needs for a prolongation of the deadline and Biden just not interested in listening. So that's disappointing. Whether it will have consequences or not, uh, it has it has kind of ruined the mood. And at least in the short term, it's affecting some other common projects on China and others. Hopefully again. So you see, you know, my, my sense here is that there's a lot of mending to do, a lot of patching up to do from the State Department, both in Europe and in India. And do you think that's achievable, patching up? It is achievable if it is done, but there's also a worry that there's really no interest in this. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't an, an accident and that essentially the Biden administration is not very concerned with what uh, Europe or India think and that in the end doesn't think it needs them. Now, why would that be the case when there was so many promises about working together? Uh, it's puzzling to many of us, but it seems to be the conclusion from what happened with the withdrawal. Thank you to those of you who sent in your questions. As a reminder, you can keep them coming either by emailing podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by doing what Carlos did and tweeting at us. As ever, for our final segment, we're going to take a look ahead to events in world politics. Bruno, what in global affairs will you be watching closely next week? Well, maybe sorry to disappoint, but I'm going to go back to Afghanistan because I think uh, next week is still going to be very important. Particularly, we're going to have the initial answer to the really critical question of what Taliban 2.0, 2.0 is going to look like. Whether it's going to be different Taliban, what kind of regime they are trying to build, the government is going to be announced. How important countries such as China and Russia are going to react to that. And obviously, there will have there will have consequences even for U.S. domestic politics because there's still people that have to come out of Kabul, and we're very curious to know whether the Taliban will allow for that or not. So I will still be following Afghanistan, but obviously a lot of interest as well in a topic that you are very fond of, which is the German elections. I don't think it's as momentous as sometimes described. The three parties are very similar, but still, you know, to see the SPD winning the elections would be a big story. And just a year ago, completely impossible to predict. And of course, if you're interested in the German election, we have lots of coverage both on this podcast feed and on the website. I will be looking at the increasing number of campaigns around the world for booster shots for the COVID-19 vaccines. Israel is now well on its way to giving booster shots to its entire population. So third shots, or the, the population over, over 12 anyway. The US is planning to start booster shots pretty soon. France is also the UK. Now, of course, this raises questions both for both for vaccine passports, which are now an increasing fact of life in many parts of the world, for, for travel and for entry to certain venues and so on. And it also raises questions about vaccine equity because, of course, there are billions of people around the world who haven't received one shot of a COVID vaccine. And if people in the rich world are receiving their third for many people, that means that they're essentially taking doses away from people in other parts of the world. We've had this tension over vaccine distribution for months and months now. It's nothing new, but it uh, it does seem like this will perhaps exacerbate the problem. Emily, what will you be looking forward to? I'm also going to return to the subject of Afghanistan because, as Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, said this past week, although the milita U.S. military presence is is over, engagement is going to have to continue. And as I wrote this week, I think that we will see from certain corners, 
pressure on the United States to sanction the Taliban, which would have, frankly, disastrous results for the, the country's economy and for aid organizations that are trying to to still help people there. It should be noted that Afghanistan is still largely dependent on foreign aid. So how that debate goes in Washington, I think, is one worth keeping an eye on and one that we will keep an eye on at The New Statesman. With that, all that is left is for us to say thank you so much, Bruno, for coming on the podcast today. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. You should also tell your haters and enemies. As a reminder, you could subscribe to the free newsletter World Review Experience at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.